Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 190. And welcome to Storm Season. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And especially if you live in Florida, now is a time to stay vigilant. Look at the wind howling through here. And where we were earlier, it looks like there's three or four feet of water. Waves crashing over the area from this morning. These winds are howling hurricane force plus and gusting over 100 miles an hour. The entire area, everything that's not up 20 feet is underwater right now. And uh, it's just, this is one of the worst hurricanes I've ever been in. And maybe the worst as far as covering over 25 years and 90 storms to be right in the eye wall of a high-end Cat 4. And the wind, just listen to the, let's just listen to the wind. That's Mike Seidel, a 30-year veteran of the Weather Channel. This is storm season. Hurricane Ian is slamming the U.S. right now. All of Cuba is without power. Puerto Rico is still reeling. The Keys are devastated. Florida has been hammered. And it may be far from over. And more storms are likely to follow. I haven't experienced anything close to this in 30 years. That's what Mike Seidel said. None of us has experienced anything close to this in over 30 years. Maybe ever. We're in for the stormiest storm season of our lifetime. And it's not just hurricanes. The political storms are growing and rising and hitting and making landfall on political beachheads worldwide. Protests have been continuing in Iran. The murder of 22-year-old Masa Amini after she was accused of a dress code violation and arrested by the country's so-called morality police, has sparked protests against the country's ruling Muslim clerics that have raged across Iran now for almost two weeks, with more than 75 people killed, according to one monitoring group. But the numbers are surely higher. And the storms of protest continue to grow stronger, as now the family of Masa Amini has said to the media that she was tortured before she was killed by the so-called morality police. Her cousin told CBS News she was tortured in a van after her arrest, then tortured at the police station for half an hour, then hit on her head and she collapsed. All because her head covering was reportedly too loose. Young people, mostly young women, have taken to the streets across Iran, bravely and boldly taking off their mandated hijabs and burning them, as videos continue to go viral and this political firestorm continues to grow. And in Ukraine and Russia, the storms are also building. Ukraine continues to hammer Russian forces and gain momentum and gather more funding and support from the U.S., including a new package of over $1 billion in weapons, including a doubling of HIMARS, the M142 High Mobility Artillery Rocket Systems, or HIMARS, which is a light multiple rocket launcher that's become like the Aaron Judge of the war in Ukraine. More on both of those items coming up. And back in Russia, things are coming apart, and a storm is rolling across that country as we predicted. It's moving fast. Putin has basically activated the draft, calling up hundreds of thousands of so-called reservists and reportedly Tons of randos off the street, sending them to the front lines to die. And now, Russians aren't loving it. A gunman, apparently distraught over this chaotic mobilization, opened fire at a draft office in Siberia, seriously wounding a recruiting officer, as the Kremlin, for the first time, acknowledged mess-ups in the call-up of hundreds of thousands of civilians to bolster Putin's struggling army in Ukraine. The gunman was Ruslan Zinin was in his mid-twenties, and the suspect's mother told a local news outlet that her son's close friend had gotten a draft summons despite never serving in the army. 
after Russia's defense minister pledged last week that only men with military experience and a specialization would be called up. His mother said Ruslan was very upset because of this, because his friend did not serve in the army. They said there would be a partial mobilization, but it turns out that they are taking everyone. They are. And that's why so many Russians are getting the hell out. Over 200,000 Russians have fled Putin's Russia already. And as our upcoming guest noted on Twitter, to put that in perspective, that's more Russians than invaded Ukraine in February. And Putin is locking them up. Over 2,500 people have reportedly been arrested so far for protesting against the mobilization. But again, those numbers are surely higher. And the political waters are getting higher too. The stormy anger and volatile instability inside Russia is rising as fast as the tidal waters in Naples, Florida, and could be just as devastating, and maybe even more devastating. What's more devastating than a Category 4 hurricane? Nukes. Yep, nukes. The ultimate kind of devastating storm. And the threats from Putin are realer than ever. And the stakes are even higher. If you weren't already losing sleep over the hurricane, or the prospect of Trump running again, or the fact that the Jacksonville Jaguars are in first place, or the possibility of Iran imploding, or the rise in violent extremism in America, we're talking about nukes again. Because we damn well should. Nukes remain the single biggest threat to our world. And maybe the single most underreported story in our world. The political tornado that is Putin and the tsunami of a response by Ukraine has driven Putin further into his quest and closer to the real possibility of using nukes. This is not a war game. It's not scaremongering. This is the reality of our world. Just as stronger hurricanes and rising seas and hotter weather is the reality of our world in the face of climate change, the threat of Putin using nukes in 2022 is more real than at any other time in our lifetime. Maybe more than any other time in our history. But so many fewer people track on nukes than on climate change. Sure, it's taken decades to convince the world and wake up a generation of nose-breathing earthlings to the reality of climate change. But it'll only take one low-grade tactical nuke test to wake up a generation to the threat of nukes. And just like a hurricane, the threat of Putin's nukes is not just one type. There are five categories of hurricane, from one to five. And as you're about to find out, there are four categories of oh-shit when it comes to Putin's nukes. Four levels of oh shit that Putin could exercise to hit Ukraine and or the world, kill countless people, terribly wound our planet, and change the course of human history. One man can turn on at least four different levels of geopolitical hurricane at any given moment. So if you want to sleep well tonight, do not listen to the rest of this podcast. If you want to prepare yourself for the geopolitical weather changes that could happen to your world on any day now, keep listening. Because when it comes to the threat of nukes, it's always a time to stay vigilant. But as we end September and move into October, and as the war in Ukraine rages on, this is a time to stay extremely vigilant. To start the show, you heard a clip with Mike Seidel, a 30-year veteran of hurricane watching. Now, you're about to hear from a man with the same kind of experience when it comes to nuke watching. When it comes to the geopolitical storms threatening our future, he's like a meteorologist, but more accurate. He's watching the winds, tracking the storms, understanding the history, evaluating the clouds of war, and predicting the possibilities for the future. He's a returning champion, a friend of the show, and an exceptionally wise and cool guy. Professor Nuke himself is back. Joe Serencioni. Joe Serencioni is back to predict the levels 
and courses this unpredictable and politically devastating political hurricane can take. And to take us all back to nuke school. He worked on nuclear weapons policy in Washington for more than 35 years, and he's one of the top experts in the world. He was the director of nonproliferation at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he's the author of multiple books with really fun titles like Deadly Arsenals, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Threats. He was president of the Plowshares Fund, a global security foundation. He taught at Georgetown. He's one of America's best-known weapons expert and is frequently on Fox, MSNBC, NBC, PBS, NPR, and even on Comedy Central. Because what's funnier than nukes? But after joining us on episode 141 in November of 2021 and episode 163 in March of this year, he's back to drop more knowledge bombs about nukes. And it's another episode you don't want to miss. Other shows focus on what's happening now. On this show, I'm always going to focus on what's next. I want to be the Tony Romo of politics and national security. I haven't always been right, but I've been right pretty damn often. Definitely more than most, and definitely more than most of the real and political weather people out there. And I'll put my record for calling outcomes up there against anyone. Here I am. And I'll continue to bring wave after wave of the five eyes that are the backbone of everything we do. The five categories of our content hurricane. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And light to contrast the heat, which is especially critical before, during, and after the storms. And that means bringing you important, iconic, and inspiring Americans who are weathering the storms and changing the weather. And this episode is another example. Hope is the oxygen of democracy. Yeah, it's true. And we see that especially right now in the flash floods of courageous activism in Iran and Russia. But truth is the sunshine of democracy. It's what guides you through the darkest storms. It's what draws you out of the rubble. And it's what kills the bacteria and mold in the flooded basement. It's time for a really big dose of truth and reality. Nukes are not something to bullshit about, not something to spin, and not something to ignore. And right now, when it comes to nukes, now is definitely, absolutely, and totally a time to stay vigilant. And thankfully, as we all face the terrifying possible courses this political storm can take, we're better off than the people of Florida, who have despicable Governor Ron DeSantis leading them through it. We've got a guy who's honest, who puts country above party, who knows his shit, and is not a disgusting asshole who ships migrant kids to another state to get traction on Fox News. No, we've got one of the best experts, one of the best analysts, and one of the best grandpas that I know. If Joe Biden is Uncle Joe, Joe Serencione is Professor Joe. And class is in session once again. Welcome to a masterclass on Putin's nukes. Welcome to a terrifying and real conversation about what World War III could look like. Welcome to storm season. Welcome to Independent Americans. Episode gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, welcome to the stormy season. To help us navigate this is a returning champion, a true voice of wisdom, 
uh, a professor for all Americans and a great friend of the show and maybe one of the best grandpas I know, <laughs> the great and powerful Joe Serencione is back on Independent Americans. Welcome back, my friend. Paul, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm really glad you could fit this in. We had uh, another guest who was scheduled to join us from Ukraine, who uh, is frankly caught up in combat. Uh, and and you have been great enough to come in and join us again, which is, I think, perfect timing because we've got so much to talk about with the re-emerging rising nuke threat. We've got Ukraine unfolding. Um, but before we get to that, I want to ask you the question I ask of everyone. Where are you and, and how are you? I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm at my son's house taking care of his uh, five-month-old boy while he and his wife are at work. So I'm, and I'm, so therefore, I am great. I love spending this time. I love being selectively retired. It gives me time to do things like this. It's, it's a pleasure. It's a joy. I think we talked about this last time. You know, you would be a great dinner guest, but you've got to be an awesome grandpa. And for <laughs> folks, folks who are watching, there's a guitar behind you. There's a piano behind you. There may be a five-month-old screaming behind you at some point. Um, but but you just you're such a valuable uh, voice for this country, and I'm glad you could come with to, to talk to us now um, because I think you know stakes are high again, Joe. Yes. Uh, you've got a great piece in the Washington Post that uh, came out a couple of days ago that I think lays out the nuke threat. Can we start at the top here? Because uh, last time you came to us, it was in March. The war was just starting. Uh, things have, have gotten a lot worse, a lot more dangerous. And it seems like the nuke threat is more prevalent than, than ever. But but shape it up for us. Where are we on the, on the macro and specifically with regard to the nuke threat from Putin and Ukraine? Sure. There have been multiple phases of this war. You know, Putin's failed uh, immediate offensive, couldn't capture Kiev. He had to back off. Then he retreated to the trying to capture the Donbass region. That is failing. And that brings us to this phase where it appears that Putin is losing the war. And that's where this could get very dangerous. Putin has got a lot committed to this war. His, his image, his prestige, his aura of invincibility, and that is now cracking. And you're seeing fissures develop in multiple areas in, in Russian society among the Russian leadership. Morale among his troops is at rock bottom. And we hear lots of mill bloggers in Russia complaining about this. And so therefore, he's starting to raise the stakes. He's trying to do everything he can to prevent defeat, including renewed nuclear threats. He made these kinds of threats in the beginning. It was the shield beyond which, behind which he thought his offensive would succeed. And now it might be the, the shield that, that he hopes will prevent his defeat. He's warning the West, he's warning Ukraine that he will use nuclear weapons, not just to defend Russian territory, but to defend the territory in Ukraine that he's now annexing. He just had these fraudulent referenda in, in Ukraine this week. Over, He's announced just today while we're recording this that there's between uh, 80 and 95 percent approval, obviously absurd figures, uh, approval from the population to join Russia. So now his plan is to annex, annex these these oblasts, these provinces, which none of which he fully controls. And in so doing, he will declare them Russian territory. And therefore, any attack on these territories are an attack on Russia. And that allows him to use nuclear weapons, longstanding part of Russian doctrine. They will use nuclear weapons to defend their territory. And that gets us right at the, 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 the tip of uh, the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, we're probably closer to, to seeing the use of nuclear weapons than we have been at any intentional time since the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. That, that's powerful. And, and I'm, I'm glad you put a, a button on it at the end. And I want to go through the four scenarios you lay out in your piece in the post. But before we get to that, I think there's one piece that I, I want to ask you to pull apart because I think it's important. You know, in, I look back on, on the, the show description for March and, and I wrote, you know, Ukraine can win this thing. I wrote that in March. Others, you know, you and others have been tracking on this. We, 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 I think a lot of folks underestimated the Ukrainians, but we also didn't underestimate Putin. And we knew Putin probably could invade. He would do things like a draft, everything that people think Putin might not do, he will do, right? And he has a different value set. But the point I want to ask you to drill down on is when you say nukes are a part of the Russian doctrine, mm. can you explain what that means in terms of how they train, how they drill and how they think? 
Sure. Uh, nuclear weapons are an integral part of Russia's strategic planning. So it, it, they, they aren't just a weapon of last resort. They aren't just there to deter other countries from attacking them with nuclear weapons. They are to be used in conventional battles. They have a first use doctrine. They're willing to use these first in a conventional battles. So does the United States. Um, and and this, the strategies are not dissimilar, but Russia goes deeper into this. They have something that they call escalate to de-escalate, or some would call it escalate to win. That is, if they're losing the conventional war, they will use nuclear weapons to signal to the opponent that the stakes are this serious and they're willing to go all the way in the hopes that the opponent um, backs down. And And they regularly practice this doctrine. The U.S. does integrated nuclear conventional drills too every once in a while, a couple of times a year. Every major conventional exercise that the Russian military has performed, including just before the invasion of Ukraine, includes a, a scenarios where they use nuclear weapons. So this is real. They're, they, they're dedicated to this. They have weapons designed for these kinds of scenarios. And we're now at that point where we could see Putin in various ways uh, use a nuclear weapon first in the hopes of uh, preventing his defeat. And well, I, I, will, I will put a pause and say, if your grandson wakes up and we need to pause, we will we can do that <laughs> because that's another kind of signal that that, that I know you're, you're you're listening for. But let's talk about the four scenarios because I think this is important. I think most <laughs> most most laymen, yeah. most civilians right. think that it's all or nothing, right? It's it's right, like right, war right. games or the day after some apocalyptic movie you've seen when every warhead gets launched and we're all dead in an, in a nuke winter, right? But you lay out a couple of scenarios that are of, of an escalating scale and. and the the first one you talk about is a demonstration shot. Can you talk right. about what that is and what that means? Right. So there are, you know, there's lots of scenarios and lots of vari variations, but they fall into four broad categories. And the first is a demonstration shot. And the Russian doctrine explicitly talks about this. So they would fire a nuclear weapon into a largely uninhabited area, say, over the Black Sea. And the purpose of that is to show their seriousness. Now, remember, if a nuclear bomb goes off. This would be the first time we'd seen a nuclear weapon in 77 years. The whole world would stop. This would become what everybody was talking about. We haven't even seen an above ground nuclear explosion since the last uh, atmospheric test done by China in 1980. So this is, you know, Rare. This would be a shock. And the U.S., uh, some in the U.S., particularly the scientists in the Manhattan Project, proposed just such a demonstration shot at the end of World War II. Instead of bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they proposed a demonstration shot to show uh, what they had in the hopes of getting the adversary to retreat. I, I think this is unlikely, however, for the very reason the U.S. military rejected it in 19. 45. As shocking as it is, it's not shocking enough. And, you know, the, the likely response would not be for us to fire a missile at Moscow, right? It would be increased sanctions. It would be a tougher talk, you know, but, but we wouldn't respond in kind with some kind. We could respond with, with a warning shot of our own, maybe. I don't know if that's in, in the scenario planning, but they wouldn't likely hit Russia because they sent off this warning shot. But the next level of escalation that you talk about is a low yield weapon, right? Can you talk about going up this ladder from warning shot now to low yield, what, what comes next, Joe? Sure. And that's the other half of the analysis. You know, what is the U.S. response to this? And you can be sure that our military and intelligence and political leaders have been studying this since the beginning of the war. We know they have. There were press reports about this, and they're looking at all the scenarios and preparing response packages. And those response packages, just like you say, Paul, it's not automatically go nuclear. In fact, it's probably automatically don't go nuclear mm -hmm. because the U.S. does not want to get into a nuclear escalation. They fire, we fire, they fire more back. We have to, you're trying to avoid that. So you're trying to have escalation control. So in the case of a demonstration shot, there may not even be a military response. It could be uh, in, increased uh, military aid to Ukraine. It would absolutely be harsh sanctions. It would automatically result in, almost automatically result in Russia's international isolation. Even China and India would back off from, from him, for example. So you could see that kind. Again, trying to control it, trying to prevent Putin from taking any further steps. 
But if he doesn't go demonstration shot, if he actually does a nuclear attack, he has various options. Probably the most likely option is a low yield uh, nuclear weapon used on a Ukrainian military target, a port, an airfield, a troop concentration. And they could use some of the weapons they have in their arsenal, including the Iskander missile, the ground launch cruise missile, which has already seen extensive use in, in Ukraine with a conventional warhead that is already uh, equipped in, with a, a nuclear mode where they have a warhead on there that can go down as low as 10 kilotons. So a relatively small nuclear weapon. It's still an extremely large explosion. That's 10,000 tons of TNT or about 20,000 of our standard conventional bombs, our 1,000 pound bombs. Imagine 20,000 of those dropping in one place at one time and you get a, a sense of the, the, the power of that device. But that would kill depending on the target, hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands. But, you know, for nuclear weapons, a relatively small physical and, 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 uh, and um, body count for a nuclear weapon. And the hope, again, would be that you would stun Ukraine into surrender. You would stun the West. You'd back it off. And a lot of the West would say, OK, that's it. We're out. Right. So that's the point to that. To counter that, the response from the U.S. would likely be uh, what we just said and for the demonstration shot, plus um, perhaps conventional military at attacks on the unit that launched that uh, that weapon. You would see, you know, substantial U U.S. aid flowing in. The trick would be, does U.S. and NATO come in directly now or do ground troops start to flow into Ukraine? That would be the kinds of decisions you you're trying. But again, the U.S. and Russia have uh, sufficient conventional forces, precise, um, accurate uh, conventional forces, they could devastate any targets they chose. They wouldn't have to go nuclear. And going along this terrifying ladder of escalation, uh, next up is is a large yield weapon, right? And, and right. can you explain what that means and what that would look like, Joe? Right. So the warhead I described uh, on the Iskander, for example, and there's multiple missiles that are equipped with these plus airdropped units. And these are all short, medium range uh, delivery vehicles, so something suited for battlefield conditions. That that warhead on the Iskander has a low yield of ten. It has an upper yield of a hundred. So now you're looking at three, four, five times the size of Hiroshima. This would be a major blast. Now you start casual, causing casualties, at least in the thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. You know, if you might drop that if you chose on a, on a city. If he hit Kiev to try to decapitate the leadership, for example, that would be a stunning uh, attack. You know, the, the 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 most destruction we've ever seen on uh, on a city since uh, since the end of World War Two, and that would almost certainly provoke a major U.S. Maybe NATO, and we can talk about this, the difference, maybe NATO response with a massive, at least conventional um uh, assault on Russian targets. And the idea would be to, to intimidate, to deter Putin from doing this again. So again, we have conventional options here. You'd start to hear talk among some of the military leaders, some of the political leaders arguing for a response in kind, for a nuclear response. I think the indications are from the Biden administration and from the military leadership, they would prefer not to go nuclear if they could avoid it. Does, does that mean uh, they would empower Poland or someone that's more in, in the line of fire on NATO to be a forward edge of some kind of a response and still try to keep themselves at, at a distance? And this is obviously an apocalyptic kind of scenario, but it's but it's real now. Right. I mean, this is they're gaming this out in the Pentagon right now. They're gaming this out at NATO and they've got literally multiple scenarios right. on the board right. based right. off what happens. Right. Right. And here's what you're struggling with. If you're not going to surrender, which is what Putin wants. Well, right. what do you do exactly and how do you control the escalation? How do you prevent this from going, as Joe Biden has said frequently, we're not going to fight World War Three in Ukraine. How do you stop that from happening? So that's the trick. And that's what you're weighing. And in some ways, it's not a moral judgment of whether we should use nuclear weapons or not, although I would argue that that should be part of the consideration. It's a practical military 
consideration. If I do this, what are the odds that Putin will back down? What are the odds that he'll escalate? And that's why you you want to try as much as you can to keep it at the conventional level. And we could do that. You know, many people have gamed this out. If the U.S. and NATO were to intervene, we have enough conventional forces that we could wipe out the Russian forces in Ukraine in a matter of days. We could knock out their command structures. You know, we could stop them and we could roll them all the way back to the border. And that's before you consider taking out targets in Russia itself. Okay, now the worst case scenario of this, you know, uh, gruesome foursome here would be a, a nuke attack on, on NATO. You describe it as the least likely scenario, um, but part of you know Russia's doctrine, right? It's in it's in their playbook. Can you talk about what what a full nuke attack on NATO by Russia would look like? Right. So suppose you saw something like a, a 100 kiloton or 50 kiloton weapon drop on Warsaw or on on Paris, and Medvedev, uh, top advisor to. Um, Dmitry Medvedev, a top advisor to Putin, has said just two days ago that if we use a nuclear weapon, the West will not respond. They care more about Paris, London and Brussels than they do about Ukraine. So this they're thinking this. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the reason I say it's a last resort is that I think in Putin's thinking, this is probably his second strike. This is this is this is the highest risk strike. You do this and you are absolutely going to get what, what Biden has called a catastrophic response. You're going to get all the tools at their disposal up to nuclear and maybe even nuclear in the councils of government. There would be serious pressure to use a nuclear weapon to respond in kind, as they say. And some would argue you need to do that to preserve deterrence. You can't allow a Western a NATO country to be hit by a nuclear weapon and not respond with nuclear force. And others would be arguing, as they have in, in war games, so we, we know this, mm -hmm. that it's better to respond with conventional. That gives us more control of the escalation. But this is now you're right at the nuclear brink. Because once, if you did make that decision to go nuclear itself, well, all bets are off, really. Right. You, you, right. you, you don't know. You're no longer in control. You don't know what Putin's going to do next. And a lot of war games start off with just this scenario, a Russian first strike on NATO, and they escalate quickly and, and, and devolve into a global thermonuclear war. So this is where it gets real dicey. And for that reason, I think it's the least likely, but you can't rule it out. There's still a chance Putin might take that uh, that risk. Joe, the P uh, we're, we'll link to the piece you wrote in the Washington Post in the show notes. But you wrote, these are horrible scenarios to consider. Yeah. If you're worried, you're having the appropriate reaction. And we say a lot in this show, stay vigilant, be informed, understand the landscape. Can I ask you about two variables that 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 that, that I want, want to know about? Yeah. Number one, um, what's to stop uh, Ukraine from pursuing Putin in Russia? Right. Like if they say we want to try him for war crimes, we want to hold leadership accountable. Everybody assumes Ukraine's going to stop at the border and say, OK, we're done. There may be, uh, you know, a drive toward actually capturing uh, or killing Putin. We've now seen there's a pipeline attack. This is expanding in ways that, that many didn't predict. Um, but does this scenario change at all if if Ukraine or a NATO alliance more likely would be Ukraine? Right. We always assume we can control Ukraine, which I don't think is a safe assumption. They may want to go into Russia. Does that change this calculation or scenario planning at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've given these advanced weapons to Ukraine under the condition that they not use them to attack Russian targets. Again, trying to control the escalation, trying to keep this a confined battle as horrible as it is. But if you're a Ukrainian and your leadership has been killed, right? Or or tens of thousands of, of your people have been wiped out, you know, you might take those M777s, you might take those HIMARS and you just like move on right up there and go as deep into the headquarters, into, the, into Russia as you can to try to kill their leadership too, to try to get them. And so uh, this is part of the thinking of why the administration has not given Ukraine ATACMs, for example. You know that system that can go three, four, five times what the HIMARS uh, can do and has kept back some of the advanced fighter aircraft that Ukraine wants because they're aware that if this thing gets out of control, they really can't stop Ukraine from, do this, uh, from doing this other than trying to persuade them. Joe, can you, can you just talk about the HIMARS for a second? Because it's been a game changer. Uh, it, it, you know, months ago, people said, if we give them HIMARS, 
Putin could fire a nuke. If we did this, Putin could fire a nuke. I, I feel like some of the oxygen has been sucked out of that that fear mongering that, in my view, played into Putin's hand. Right. We said if we enforced a no fly zone, if we gave them too many weapons, if we gave them HIMARS. But HIMARS have been I think it seems like a, a legitimate game changer. Can you talk about uh, if that's true and, and why? Absolutely. Look, first, all credit goes to the Ukrainian military and political leadership who have been just masterful in this and to the morale and and uh, fighting spirit of the Ukrainian forces who have been incredible. And of course, to the, you know, the 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 advantage that defenders have when it's their country that's been invaded. But these HIMARS and the drones, I would say, and the MCCCs, but the HIMARS in particular, have given Ukraine the ability to do scoot and shoot deep behind Russian lines. So they're mobile. You can move them into position. They are incredibly accurate. And coupled with the drones and the intelligence the U.S. is providing, you can pinpoint Russian headquarters. You can pinpoint ammunition dumps that are, that are 40, 50 miles behind the front lines and hit them accurately with rounds of these very powerful rockets, and then move, move your uh, artillery piece before the Russians can come after it with counter battery fire. And this, as far as I know, they have not lost any HIMARS. They have, by the way, I don't know if you saw the story, they had, the Ukrainians have made wooden HIMARS decoys that look like HIMARS to attract the Russian uh, uh, cruise missiles and drones and sort of draw down their supplies in this Potemkin HIMARS. So they've been extremely effective at this. And I don't think we've lost one of them. And so the Ukrainians are using them very effectively. And this is what's allowed them to get very close to being able to take retake Kirshan, for example, and to knock out the transportation nodes, the supply nodes. I, I think as today, as we talk, there's reports that the, the Kirshan troops are now isolated and the mm-hmm. Kirshan commanders have been asking for permission to retreat. And Putin is now intervening and, and personally making battlefield decisions and telling them to stand their ground. This could be the next big event in this Ukraine war. If Kirshan falls, uh, things are going to get very, very dicey for Putin. So the Russians have lost more generals than the Ukrainians have HIMARS, I think, right? And and Dozens, dozens of generals have been killed, tracked down, you know, their communications picked up, Mm -hmm. uh, drones or artillery sent in to kill them. This is the other forward edge that I want to ask you to talk about, maybe pulling it all together. The other thing that is that is dramatically unfolding is unrest inside Russia. Now there are protests. The draft is underway. This can go sideways in a lot of ways internally that could result in the toppling of Putin, you know, massive disruption internally. I guess the the, the real question is, uh, how safe are Russia's nukes? If Putin doesn't have them or if, or if there's disruption in the leadership there, um, you know, I think maybe the term loose nukes or whatever we call it. How safe are Russia's nukes if the Russian government gets overturned or there's massive political tumult there while it's also happening in Iran now, too? Right. Which is an, another piece on this chessboard. But talk about that, if you could, Joe, how dangerous and, and, and is that scenario? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you know, it it appears that in his desperation, Putin has done something he didn't want to do. He's doing a mobilization. Maybe it's partial. Maybe it's full. It's at least a call up of 300,000. And it appears to be as incoherent, as as um, incompetently handled as his invasion was. I mean, this, again, is showing the cracks in what we thought was the second best army in the world. They don't have a plan for this. They are not they don't have it. They're not equipped to do what Putin has now commanded them to do. And you've heard there's already stories Ukraine reported the day before we're recording this, that some of these conscripts have shown up. That means you're getting conscripts with under a week's training suddenly thrown into the front lines. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. But Putin is doing this and he's stirring up more opposition to his rule than we've seen in years. And he's broken the basic pact. He has with the Russian people, which was you stay out of politics, you leave me alone, you let me run the government and I will guarantee you security, stability, economic prosperity, which he has more or less delivered on. And now he's breaking that. And with the losses he's showing that that are showing on the battlefield, his invulnerability, his image of of being omnipotent and omniscient is cracking. And you're, so you're seeing fissures open up, not just among the Russian population, but among the Russian leadership. You're seeing senior Russian uh, parliamentarians, the head of the federal council, for example, the higher body of the Russian Duma, criticize uh, not 
Putin, but the implementation of the mobilization. You're seeing mill bloggers uh, speak out. You're seeing people on tightly controlled Russian TV speak out, saying it's time to sue for peace. You know, this is a country where you're not even allowed to call this a war, and people are talking about coming to a diplomatic negotiated solution. So this is getting very, very uh, dicey for Putin, which brings us back to the beginning of this. You know, what's his move here? How does he prevent defeat? And one of those moves is nuclear. It's it's in play. It's real. I don't say this to scare people. Mm. It's just that, like you say, be vigilant, be alert, understand what's going on here so that you, you can properly respond. Finally, I got to give kudos to the Biden administration for how they've handled this. You know, they have they have threaded this needle. They have mm-hmm. given Ukraine a lot of, of material. They built up uh, an international coalition to support him without provoking Putin so far. Yep. And, and they've opened the floodgates, like another 10 mil- billion, I think. And, and I wasn't sure if they were going to do that. And you saw some resistance from some of the, the, the Trumper uh, Republicans, yeah. you know, the 10 or 15 that were voting against Ukraine support and have been, you know, the, the same folks that frankly deny the election and conspiracy theorists. But it, I think Biden has kept the pedal down and they've, they've really uh, managed this well. But just to put a point on that last question, Joe, if Putin dies, Somebody in his oh, right. leadership Sorry. kills him. If somebody kills well, him, how safe are Russia's nukes? You know, I, 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 I'm worried about this because then you'd be back into a, a, the situation we confronted in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union unexpectedly collapsed. And there you were with loose nukes and you who had, you know, in a tightly controlled command structure. If the center falls, well, who has control? Who has command? Who can do this? You know, I. I think in, I don't want to overstate this because I think in general these weapons are very tightly controlled. There, there, there's elite units guarding them. They're removed from the battlefield. They're not placed in the battlefield. They're in central storage, so, largely because of U.S. efforts in the '90s to get do exactly this to mm-hmm. consolidate them, to bring them in, to with, use arms control agreements to draw down the, the arsenals. So we're much better off than we were in the '90s. But you'd be facing a similar situation, particularly. If there were some field, even fear, even more ultra nationalist elements that try to seize control, you know, mm-hmm. it could be worse than Putin. You know, you got to keep that in mind. And if that kind of fighting breaks out, these nuclear weapons could become pawns in an internal Russian power structure uh, struggle. And, and all kinds of scenarios open up that there is really no planning for. And Joe, as we've seen in some of the contested areas, I would assume also that Russian uh, nuke plants are also a vulnerability, right? I mean, if, if they're, you know, casualties on the battlefield or they're left unsecure or people in the military and, and other apparatus just start to quit, uh, is that another scenario that we've got to be tracking on? Well, we've seen it in some of the contested areas of Ukraine. Is it similarly going to be a concern if there's a government toppling inside of Russia? Uh, you you could see that. I mean, in Ukraine, we've seen Putin intentionally using the risk of um, a, a catastrophe at a nuclear power plant, the Zaporizhia power plant, uh, as a form of nuclear terrorism, another part of this nuclear threat. Don't push me or this thing, this terrible thing could happen. It, in, in the case of chaos in Russia, you, you could see that if there's a collapse of command, if there's a, a collapse of control, you could see operator error, um, uh, un, undisciplined um, ret- ret- retreat from the nuclear power plants. I, I, I would, that would not be high on my list, but it'd be in the mix of, of things you now have to start worrying about that you weren't worrying about before. No, you are like a meteorologist predicting these crazy (laughs) storms and you've been so uh, forward looking. Um, You know, I got to ask, you know, this is this is a lot. Right. Uh, I've asked you this before, but, you know, how do you keep balance here when you're dealing with such serious stakes? And how do you keep, you know, yourself and your family? uh, I don't I don't know. Calm is the right word. But how do you approach these conversations? You've got grandkids who, you know, and grandpa goes in the back and talks about, you know, World War Three. And how how do you how do you manage that uh, as a leader uh, and and as a family man and and as as a voice in this country for yourself and others? Yeah, thanks for asking. As we discussed, I do like bourbon. And that <laughs> helps, helps a lot. It's always nice to have a nice Italian red, you know, at the end of a day. Uh, but 
Uh, part of it is just having a sense of history. I mean, you look over the last 77 years of the nuclear age, and we've come close before. And you have learned lessons from that. And you, it, it, part of it is luck, but part of it is policy skill. And knowing that there are policies that can get us out of this. This is not for, de- for you, this is not mandated. None of this has to go this way. And we've seen, you know, like the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, like Reagan Gorbachev, you know, bitter enemies coming together, looking, staring at the nuclear uh, chasm and deciding to walk back, you know. And so I think that's the kind of thing you see now. So I would bet that Joe Biden is 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 talking to NATO le- leaders right now and our general staff and Lloyd Austin are talking to NATO leaders right now because there's nothing automatic about a NATO response in the face of even uh, a nuclear attack on NATO. You know, you got 30 nations that have to agree to do this. Would Hungary agree? You know, would would Poland uh, uh, agree to this? Would there be a pressure to to pull back and surrender and say, OK, that's enough? Enough of this Ukraine war. We're done with it. So you got to start working all this in advance and you got to start building up a global response to what Putin is doing. So you make you, you make it extremely hard for him to break this nuclear taboo, to cross this nuclear line. And that's why you see Secretary of State Blinken out in the talk shows talking about this. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan talking about it. They're, they're trying to alert people that this is a risk and be prepared for this and, and convince Putin that this is not a winning move. That despite what Dmitry Medvedev says, we are not going to back down. You can't do this without suffering catastrophic consequences. We're not going to tell you what they are, but here's the list of the things we could do. So don't even get, don't don't go there. Well, I hope uh, Putin would listen. I, he won't, but I, I hope Biden is listening to you. We go ahead. You had you had some. Well, just that. Answer. You know there there. You know, is there an exit ramp for Putin? And I don't mean some geostrategic, let let him annex 20% of Ukraine territory. You're already seeing some op-eds uh, saying that's the way out. No, I mean some kind of, you know, he could stay alive. He won't be mm-hmm. tried. He could take his billions and go someplace else, just leave power. You know, you is there a way to, to, to have a soft landing for Putin as despicable as that is, as untasteful as that is, you know, if it, if it results in the end of the war, you might agree to that kind of um, end game for him, that way out for him personally. Yeah, well, the end of the war is better than the end of the world, right? right. And I think that that's the alternative. And, you know, if, that, if I were going to predict or if I were going to request a soft landing for him, It'd be sharing a cell in Guantanamo with Donald Trump. But I don't think that that's going to happen. But in the the meantime, um, you you continue to be just such a valuable voice for this country, Joe. You're a voice of reason and perspective and insight. I wish every show had you on every day. Um, But I'm I'm thankful that you're back on on this show again. And and for all that you do, you're you're such a, a valuable public servant. And I'm just really grateful for your leadership and your wisdom and, and your balance. You're just, you're just helping us all understand this in a really powerful way. So thank you for all that you do, for taking some time away from your family and for helping us through these rocky storms, my friend. You're very kind. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for doing this. Thank you for keeping us vigilant and alert. You got it, my friend. Let's stay vigilant and have a bourbon sometime in person soon. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be thank great. Thank you, Joe. All right. I bet you're awake now. Maybe you need a drink. And Joe Serencione is a guy I wish we could all have a drink with and have a meal with. He's a really nice guy, a good family man, and a true public servant. He's the coolest and most terrifying type of weatherman there is. He's also a big baseball fan. He tweeted a few hours after we recorded this conversation that he was at the Washington Nationals game. And given how the Nationals have played this year, that shows you that he's a man of integrity and honor. He's also widely respected. The article we talked about in this episode that he wrote is already being shared far and wide, including by folks like Nick Kristoff of the New York Times and Nathan Hodge of CNN International, who tweeted, I always rely on Joe Serencione when I want to lose some sleep. Joe may make you lose sleep, but it's worth it. Like watching an episode of Ken Burns' new series on PBS about the U.S. and the Holocaust, which I highly recommend. 
It's powerful, sobering, important, and tough to hear. Like much of what Joe said today, and in the past episodes he's been on this show. But now you know, he is an invaluable voice for America and the world. And he's a true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. The helpers are out there. We see them every day, even when the storms are raging. And we will see it again in the face of Hurricane Ian. And I'm going to post them on social. Use the hashtag LookForTheHelpers on Twitter and share yours. I'll share stories about kids doing amazing things. I shared a story about firefighters who delivered a baby. And I'll share stories from Hurricane Ian. So share yours and I will share mine. And when you're on social, play Guest the Guest with me every Wednesday night. Look for the hashtag Guest the Guest or follow us on any of the social media platforms. And you can have a chance to chime in and win and make your own predictions about what's to come. Now, some of you play every week, and there's one guy who plays every week and gets it almost every week, and I got to give him a shout out. It's our friend Delfino Sanchez of Aldine Tree Services, Houston Stump Grinding, which all of you near Houston, Texas should look up right away in the event Hurricane Ian or any other hurricane knocks down your trees. Delfino Sanchez will be there, just like he is every week, to somehow accurately guess our guest. He's like the Aaron Judge of Guess the Guest. This week, he said, hey, Paul, could it be the great and powerful Joe Serencione from episode 163 and 141? I think this guy has like my phones tapped or something. I don't know how he gets this, but he said, I can't find a photo match with Representative Ted Lieu. However, I found a video where Joe introduces Ted at a nuclear policy event. He also asked me, will Judge pass 61? Stay frosty, my friend. Well, Delfino, you got it again, and damn right Judge hit 61. More on that in a second. But check out those past episodes with Joe Serencione, all at independentamericans.us. You can also see video of my conversation with Joe, and you can again see inside my New York City apartment. I am back in New York City, and the boxes are almost all gone, but still not gone. My wife was traveling this week, and the boys had two days off for the Jewish holiday, and I've been busy. So my living room continues to be the temporary home of this show, and you can see it, along with my reasonably poor lighting and some little Easter eggs I put in the backdrop. Look in the backdrop. If you're watching the video, you can find us on YouTube. And if you notice anything, give me a holler on social or send us an email, and I'll send you some righteous merchandise which you should get, by the way. Maybe you don't have a Halloween costume yet. So this Halloween, you can be righteous or you can be an independent American for Halloween. You can do that if you get the merchandise and support this show at independentamericans.us. It's super cool. It's super comfortable. And you can wear it no matter what the weather is outside. You can also support this show and help us weather the storms by joining our fearless Patreon community. Join the vigilant, the very vigilant, the most vigilant. Big shout out to all of our Patreon members who help fuel this show and to our newest member, Andrew Harper. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for helping us and supporting the fight. And one more thing, please do us a solid and subscribe. If you haven't subscribed, double check right now, whatever platform you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever, and subscribe. That way you will get every new episode automatically and you will help us build our audience. And if you can, please leave a review. A lot of you have left reviews, and I am extremely grateful. Want to give you all a shout out. JT Rested Z left a review on Apple Podcast, and that person said, Five stars, great podcast, truth, justice, and the American way. Tell them, Paul, and tell us what to do to be a helper. I love the story about peeing outside, raising your boys. You give me hope. Love you. And a piece of my heart came back from Iraq. And I'm so glad you do, too. Thank you very much for that review. I appreciate it. Another listener named PG07 left a review on Apple Podcasts and said they downloaded the episode to listen to his interview with Christy Todd Whitman. Glad he got the explanation of the forward party goals that he had been searching for. Really like the soccer team analogy. I appreciate that there are podcasts speaking to the issues that nonpartisan voters care about. Best of luck to you, sir. Thank you, PG. Thank you for checking that out. We will continue to focus on the forward party and independent politics. If you haven't heard my recent episode with Christy Todd Whitman, who is now a co-founder of the forward party, check it out. She is working alongside Andrew Yang, who will be on this show in November. 
We're still waiting for Andrew Yang. We're going to have to wait till November. He will be a guest on this show, and we will continue to stay focused on independent politics. One more shout out. Bart Mark left a review on Apple Podcasts and said, love this podcast. Very interesting topics and to the point. No sugarcoating. Can't wait for next Thursday. And we will be back next Thursday and every Thursday because Righteous is going to continue to bring you wave after wave of the five eyes and all our podcasts and everything we do that's independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And it's coming to you by our fearless team of storm chasers at Righteous Media, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. Thank you to them for helping me get this episode and every episode out and Thank you to my wife and two amazing boys. As always, my boys themselves are like two little hurricanes, but they've been through the thick and the thin and everything else that comes next. I was born in the rain on the pocket train Underneath the Louisiana moon I don't mind the strain of a hurricane They come around every June So it was National Sun's Day this week. And last week was National Daughters' Day. So happy Sons' Day and happy Daughters' Day to all the daughters and sons and parents. I am lucky to be blessed with two boys, as you know if you listen to this show. And we are very excited about the fall. We're excited about watching the return of F1 and the Singapore Grand Prix at night this week. It'll be about 8 a.m. East Coast time. If you haven't checked out F1 before you check out football on Sundays, I highly recommend it. And of course... The boys and I have been riveted this week, bearing witness to an incredible athlete, role model, and force of nature who this week made history. And the 3-2. Drill deep to left field. This could be it. See ya. He's done it. Number 61. He's been chasing history, and now he makes it. He and Roger Maris are tied with 61 home runs. The most anybody has ever hit in a single season in American League history. He did it. Aaron Judge has tied Roger Maris's record. By the time you listen to this, he may have broken it, and it's been awesome to watch. And as he breaks Maris's record, in my view, he should be the true home run champion. Sosa, Bonds, McGuire, they all juiced, and they shouldn't count. So Judge is the true champ. And not just because he's a Yankee, but also because he's a good dude, someone who understands history, someone who understands he's a role model for kids, someone who understands how to be a teammate, and someone who understands what it means to help others. 30 miles on the Gulf Stream, I hear the south wind moan, bridges getting lower, the shrimp boat's coming home. Because that's what we all need to do when the storms hit. This is a song about a hurricane and about storms and about New Orleans. And we all know Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans back in 2005. I was there soon afterward, walking the streets and getting the lay of the land with the great folks at the St. Bernard Project in St. Bernard Parish in Louisiana. Founded by my friends Liz McCartney and Zach Rosenberg. And I was down there with my good friend Reese May, a former Marine, an awesome dude who continues to do great work in disaster areas in Louisiana and around the country. Hurricane Katrina was devastating, but it was also inspiring. People banded together and they rebuilt and they fought back after the storm. And that's kind of the spirit of this song. Hurricane was co-written by Tom Schuyler, Keith Stiegel, and Stuart Harris. The great Levon Helm recorded for his 1980 album, American Sun, and was later recorded by country singer Leon Everett, who released it in July of 1981, where it peaked at number four on Billboard's Hot Country Singles chart. And then this version by Band of Heathens was recorded in 2018, and I love it. It's tough, it's raw, gritty, and fierce, and it reminds us that we can stand up to a storm, no matter what kind of storm it is. And we can survive and we can endure. That's what folks did in New Orleans after Katrina. That's what we did here in New York after Sandy. And it's what folks in Florida will do after Hurricane Ian. So I want to send love and strength to all our friends and family in Florida right now. And in other places impacted by this storm and others. Places like Cuba and Puerto Rico. Because the threat of storms is real for all of us. 
and so is the threat of nukes. And in both cases, more than most others, we're all in this together. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. We're all in this together, especially this storm season. From Kiev to Key West, from Moscow to Fort Myers, from the Scorpions to Levon Helm to Band of Heathens, from Mike Seidel to Aaron Judge, from Joe Serencioni to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraini. Stay strong and stay vigilant, America. Powered by Righteous Media.